0: Good morning, and I want to uh, begin this morning with a word of prayer, and then we will jump right in and uh, have our forum. Let me point out that, first of all, I've received about uh, 15 to 17 questions that I have here that I'll begin to work through. But also, there is a mic here, a mic here, a mic there, and a mic here. So that if you have a question that you would like to uh, uh, raise and would like for me to address i uh, just simply walk to uh, one of the mics uh, and just stand there for a moment. And uh, after I finish answering one of the questions that I uh, received, uh, I'll be glad to recognize you and uh, you can ask uh, anything uh, that you would like. And so just want to make you aware again of these four mics that are available and that you can feel welcome to go to one of them and uh, put forth anything that you'd like to have addressed today. So let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll start. Father, I thank you so much for what it is, an incredibly beautiful day. And I thank you so much again for the joy of knowing you as my Savior and as my Father. And I thank you for our students and what a blessing and encouragement they are to me. And uh, I would ask that you would make this hour a profitable time. That would be a time of instruction, encouragement, and that, Lord, as a result of it, again, we would be more faithful servants of yours. For I ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I received a number of questions related to the Great Commission resurgence, and so I'm going to kind of combine them. Specifically, I was asked uh, what uh, role will preaching play in the Great Commission resurgence. I was asked what role will the, the seminaries and specifically Southeastern take? with the changes and reorganization undergone at uh, the IMB and then just what are my feelings about uh, how the uh, Great Commission Resurgence and its task force uh, is progressing. So let me try to be concise but say several things uh, about that. First of all, Greatly encouraged at our convention this year, by a 95% vote, the messengers authorized the president to appoint a task force to study our convention from the local church all the way up to national agencies like Southeastern uh, to discern how we could more effectively fulfill the Great Commission. And so there was a wonderful spirit, a lot of enthusiasm that resulted in that. Uh, Johnny Hunt then appointed a task force. Uh, he asked me uh, to serve on it, uh, in addition to myself here in North Carolina, uh, Pastor Al Gilbert at Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem is on the task force. And J.D. Greer, uh, Summit Church, is on the task force as well. Um, I am hopeful about what might come out of all of this. I'm not as optimistic as I am hopeful. You say, what's the difference? Well, I'm hopeful because uh, I trust in God. And uh, God's will will prevail and the Lord will accomplish his good purposes for his glory, whether we're involved in it or not. And so I'm hopeful because I've read the last chapter of the book and in the end, God wins and we get to be a part of that. And so uh, I rejoice in that uh, at the same time, uh, I'm hopeful because folks like you uh, have such a passion for the Great Commission. You have a real desire Uh, to see uh, us impact the nations and I also sense among many of you that you want to see us impact our nation uh, where the needs are very great Uh, again it it boggles the mind to think that in some of our southern states we plant a hundred couple hundred churches every two or three years and we don't have that many churches in the entire state of New York or Illinois or Pennsylvania or Michigan or Washington or Oregon. And I keep going for a long time. And so I'm kind of trying to struggle with why it is that we not only uh, and I'll, I'm going to tread lightly here, but go ahead and just jump out in the deep. Why we keep so many resources in the south and also why we seem to do more church planning in the south where there are. Literally thousands of churches, Southern Baptist churches in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. And we don't plant churches where there are no evangelical churches. I'm struggling with that. Uh, It is also the case that in spite of the overwhelming uh, support for a Great Commission resurgence task force, we've received a lot of opposition. And there are a lot of uh, folks in leadership positions that are basically saying to us, don't mess with anything. Everything is just fine. So leave things alone and don't mess with anything. Even in addition to that, you have people that are uh, sinning in that they're questioning the motives of people when they don't know the motives of people. Uh, Even some have even accused me of being involved in this whole thing. Uh, with one, one primary intent, and that being to get more money for Southeastern Seminary. When the fact of the matter is, I've never said that. And in fact, if you listen very carefully, you know that I have made it very clear I'm not interested in more money coming to Southeastern Seminary. I'm interested in more money going to the nations where there's 1.6 billion people who've never heard the gospel. I'm more interested in monies going to Boston and New York and Chicago and Seattle and Portland and L.A. and San Francisco and Phoenix and Las Vegas. And I can keep going where there is a very limited exposure to the gospel. And there's very few uh, Bible believing evangelical churches. And so there can be uh, times when in all this I, uh, I get discouraged. Uh, because I, I sense that too many folks are territorial, uh, they're myopic, and they are very interested in their turf and only their turf. And I'll just remind all of us this morning, if that had been the mindset of Jesus, he'd have never left heaven to come to earth to redeem us from our sins. And so I uh, have some uh, concerns. I have some uh, pessimism in some ways, but again, at the same time, I'm hopeful that God will prevail. And again, as I'm saying, wherever I go, uh, God is going to reach the nations with the gospel. He has promised that in his word. Southern Baptists will either be a part of that or we will sit on the sideline and watch. And I don't want to be sitting on the sideline watching. I want to be right there with him doing what he believes, uh, what, what is, I believe, the heartbeat of our God. What role will preaching play? A tremendous role. Uh, the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is absolutely essential to a great commission resurgence. It's essential in your local church. If you are a faithful Bible preacher, if you are a faithful exposer of the word, then your people will have a heartbeat for the lost. They will have a heartbeat for the nations. They will recognize that the only a life-changing, life-transforming word is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that apart from the gospel, no one is saved. And therefore, I believe biblical preaching, which will which result in us thinking theologically and thinking biblically, will be a great impetus to a great commission resurgence. Again, I believe that one of the reasons we are where we are today, shrinking in churches, shrinking in membership, shrinking in baptism, shrinking in influence, is because so many churches do not have a word-based ministry. And there are many men out there, even good men, who think they are expositors, but they're not. By the way they treat the Bible, they portray their confession. And therefore, because they're not teaching their people the content of Scripture, people don't think biblically. In fact, to quote Barna, uh, people who don't uh, think like Jesus don't act like Jesus. And you can't think like Jesus unless you know how Jesus thinks. And you can't know how Jesus thinks unless you are immersing yourself in his Word, So I think preaching will play a a great role. As far as the reorganization of the IMB, well, I think what you mean by that is the fact that they've now gone to affinity groups uh, and the fact that also uh, in just the last, my goodness, uh, six weeks, uh two months there's been a resignation of the president at the North American Mission Board uh Dr. Jerry Rankin has announced his retirement effective next June Marsh Chapman at the executive committee has announced his retirement effective next uh, September and uh, so there are some seismic changes taking place within uh the SBC uh, as far as the changes to reorganization, uh, that will not affect us. We'll simply again continue to support the IMB uh, as we currently do, training uh, hopefully uh, good missionaries to go out and be good missionaries. And so I don't think the reorganization in terms of moving from regions to affinity groups will uh, will uh, impact us at all. Uh, you may be hearing out there, and I don't mind again jumping into deep water for a moment, that our task force has already determined what we're going to do, and that includes combining uh, the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board into one mission board, doing away with NAM and making everything come under IMB. Well, I'm on the task force and I've been a part of every meeting and I can assure you that nothing, first of all, is even in print as to where we're going. And secondly, though we're talking about lots of things, and in fact, if we're a responsible task force, we should be talking about as much as we can, nothing like that is even remotely on the table. We've not talked about bringing the two together in that kind of a way and abolishing the North American Mission Board. We haven't talked about that. And so people that say that uh, uh, are simply misinformed and uh, how they would know what we're talking about in confidence anyway uh, is an amazing thing to me Uh, that either means one they're just merely speculating uh, which is of no value uh, or secondly someone from our task force is misrepresenting what we're doing and I I hope that none of our brothers or sisters would do something like that I hope that they are honoring the confidentiality of what we're doing because that needs to take place and uh, that they would not again be putting out there uh, some ideas that certainly are floating around uh, but nothing has been determined at this point. Uh, we're just, we've only met, uh, as a whole committee twice and, uh, as a smaller group, uh, two other times. And, uh, we've got a lot more meetings to go, a lot more work to do. In fact, we have way too much work to do in one year. Uh, what we're being asked to do is virtually impossible. And so we need your prayers and we need God's guidance and, uh, we'll see where things go. But as far as things already being decided and now being abolished and assumed into the International Mission Board, uh, I'll just be honest with you personally, I think that would be a bad idea. And so as a member of the task force, I would be someone that would oppose that. And so those are some ideas that uh, relate to the great commission resurgence uh, that I would share with you. That's going in a completely different direction. Uh, please present a Christian understanding of interracial marriage. Uh, Please give what counsel you deem wise to a pastor requested to marry an interracial culture, uh, a couple. Well, the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't address this issue one way or the other. And so I think what we'd have to say is the Bible has nothing negative at all to say about interracial marriage. Uh, The thing the Bible speaks against is a believer marrying an unbeliever. And so if both are believers, then a a white person could marry a, a yellow person, a brown person could marry a red person, a black person could marry a yellow person, anything you want there in terms of Our uh, racial makeup, uh, the Bible, would not speak against uh, in any way. Now, there are some practical things that one has to consider, and so the question is, how would I I counsel them? Well, I would certainly bring to their attention, and and this, by the way, is not as bad as it used to be. And furthermore, some of it would be geographically uh, contextual in terms of what you would have to deal with. Uh, For example, if you are involved in an interracial marriage in, say, L.A., uh, the odds are that's not going to be a big deal because there are massive numbers of people in the la area that are interracially married uh, however if you are interracially married and you're living in south georgia or you're living in rural north carolina then you're going to have some issues that you'll have to deal with because unfortunately there's still deep-seated racism and bigotry in far too many places of our uh, of our culture and of our country and so if a couple comes to me uh, of different racial backgrounds, they, they know the Lord, they love each other, uh, they're committed to building a Christian marriage and a Christian family. Uh, I would make them aware of the concerns that I have that I just raised, and then I would be delighted uh, to perform their wedding. And I would have no hesitation in doing so whatsoever. There's nothing biblical that would speak against it. Uh, And, in fact, uh, I think everything in the Bible that would speak for it. And so uh, interracial marriage is uh, not something that I think uh, Scripture prohibits. The only thing Scripture prohibits is a believer marrying an unbeliever. And again, when I was here the first time I was at a church on one occasion that this issue came up and I made the statement that if one or all four of my sons wanted to marry someone of a different race, if she loved the Lord and loved them and I believed that she would be a good wife and a good mother, not only would I applaud the wedding, I would perform the wedding. And some of the folks in the church nearly had a stroke. Uh, one person actually came up to me the next night and said, isn't it the case that the Bible says somewhere that birds of a feather flock together? <laughs> and so I said, you know, here's my Bible. Why don't you see if you can find that? And if you do, number one, I'm going to give you a thousand dollars that I don't even have. And number two, I'll go back to the church tonight and apologize for what I said last night. And uh, she said, uh, it's not in there, is it? And I said, no, ma'am, it's not in there. And so the only reason one would oppose it would be prejudice, racism and bigotry. Yeah, there'd be some challenges to it, but that's a different issue than whether or not the Bible speaks against it. What do you believe about babies that are aborted? Uh, do all of them go to heaven? Well, what I believe about babies that are aborted, first of all, is that it's the national tragedy of our nation, and it is one of the most tragic things that's ever happened. Secondly, do I believe all of them go to heaven? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Dr. Al Mohler and I wrote an article several years ago. You can go to uh, my website, and the article is there. And I think we make a uh, compelling argument. For why anyone who does not reach an age of moral discernment where they knowingly are aware of their obedience or disobedience before God, I believe, as does Al, that they are the object of God's saving grace. And therefore, I believe those who die... From abortion go to heaven I believe those that die in infancy go to heaven I believe those that come to this world with the uh, lack of ability the incapacity to morally discern uh, I believe they are likewise the objects of God's grace and God's salvation uh, I would remind you that the Bible does make it clear that we inherit a sin nature from Adam and that we therefore inherit a certain condemnation, a condemnation that means we are sinners by nature and soon sinners by choice, and also that as a result of that condemnation in Adam, we die, and the effects of sin in terms of physical death ravage the entirety of humanity. But I would also point out to you, and John MacArthur, who is a five-point Calvinist, is very clear on this as well, and if I could recommend a book to you, uh, Dr. MacArthur has a little book uh, called Safe in the Arms of God that is a wonderful uh, defense also of the fact that those who die in infancy, those who die perhaps through um, miscarriage, uh, are the objects of God's saving, electing love. Uh, MacArthur points out, John points out, and rightly so, that the Bible never says that we go to hell because of Adam's sin. The Bible is crystal clear that you and I go to hell if we do go to hell because of our own sin. And, in fact, I had not seen this before. And, again, I think he makes the argument quite clearly. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, you have the record of the great white throne judgment. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen as I read it and make a quick comment about it. But in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, here's what John writes. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Of course, that is God, the father. And this is the final judgment. And from who uh, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. In other words, we're now entering into something cataclysmic, something of mammoth significance and proportions. And I saw the dead, uh, small and great standing before God and books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So John sees the father on the throne over here are a number of books over here is a single book. This single book, he identifies very clearly there as the book of life. And then he says, and the dead were judged. Now, listen, according to their works by the things. Which were written in the books. Question. A child that is aborted. What would be in the books plural that would record their works? Answer. Nothing. Nothing. Because the works imply, if not uh, require, that you have recorded here those things that you knowingly consciously did as acts of rebellion and disobedience against the Lord. In fact, Dr. MacArthur says, if a child were to be standing before God at the great white throne, they would not know or understand why they are there. Did they ever even one time consciously, knowingly, willfully disobey the Lord? No. 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 That They were not capable of doing that. And therefore, because they were not, I believe, as does Al, as does John. And by the way, uh, many times it is said, well, it is the Calvinists uh, that uh, make this a real problematic issue. The fact of the matter is the reformed tradition has been pretty consistent in this area of affirming uh, the salvation of all who die in infancy. Uh, even Calvin himself though he was not explicit about this said he he kept hope that indeed all who died in this state would be the object of God's saving, redemptive love. And he basically gave the uh, the implication that that's indeed what he thought would happen. And so I believe that they are the object of God's saving grace so that whenever I have stood over a small little casket uh, with a grieving family with absolute, complete and total confidence. Uh, I have encouraged them and affirmed for them that their little one is with, 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 with the Lord Jesus. And by the way, Spurgeon has a great sermon on this that is evangelistic to the hilt. And at the very end of his message, as only Spurgeon can, he goes into a rhetorical flourish and basically says, do you wish to see this little one again? Do you wish to once more be reunited to this little one who now rests in the bosom of Jesus? Then you must flee to him. For otherwise, you will not see this little one again. For you will go to that other place, whereas he will rest forever in the presence of the of the Lord Jesus, and makes a passionate appeal to parents who perhaps are unregenerate and unredeemed to be saved, that they might be reunited with their little one. And so, Spurgeon himself spoke powerfully also uh, to this particular issue. Uh, this is funny. Uh, two questions that are related. How many times are you going to have to answer the alcohol question before people quit asking you about it? (laughs) Well, but you asked me about it, so I guess until you don't ask the question anymore. And then will you please not answer a question regarding your stance on the consumption of alcohol at the presidential forum? Unless, of course, you have changed your mind since the last time it was answered. Well, uh, rest assured, I have not changed my mind since the last time uh, it was asked. And so. So. I won't ask it. I won't answer it anymore. It's, it's done. All right. Uh, and let me just assure you, uh, the odds that I'm going to change my mind are next to zero. I can promise you that. And uh, the odds that this school in my lifetime is going to adjust its policy with respect to alcohol for our faculty, staff and students is next to zero. And again, if you don't like that, then there you have all the, of my permission and freedom in the world to go to another school. You do. And let me just again remind you that if for whatever reason, while you are a student here, if you differ with our position, uh, but you choose to drink socially, then you are in sin and you are a hypocrite and you are a liar because you signed a covenant when you came here that said you would abstain. So your problem is not your view on alcohol. Your problem is your integrity, your integrity. And so you need to understand you've got a far more grave issue than uh, in my judgment than your view on alcohol, which, again, I recognize that good godly brothers and sisters can differ on this issue. Uh, and I have friends that believe that drinking in moderation uh, is fine. And we, we disagree on the wisdom of that, uh, but it does not keep us from being uh, brothers and friends and uh, working together in certain kinds of ways. Uh, the issue, again, is integrity. If you pledge to do one thing and then you choose to do another, that's a much more severe issue in terms of your qualifications uh, for ministry and also your devotion to the Lord. I have another question here that is somewhat related. And uh, so I'll take the one and roll the other one into it. I've been a student at the seminary for almost two years in this time. It seems that the females are treated as second class citizens to the males. For example, I was basically told my first semester by a student that females have no business here because they have no business in the ministry. I plan to do children's ministry after graduation. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that women cannot do children's ministry. In fact, are women not to raise the children? Is there anything you can tell the males to make them back off, that they have no right to go against what God has called a woman to do? In the Bible, women take on some major roles. God would never be wrong in choosing uh, who he wants, so why are we given a hard time here at the seminary? And then the other one simply related to the fact that uh, there are evidently some men around here That just don't have good manners and they don't know how to treat women in terms of respect, in terms of, for example, uh, opening a door, in terms of speaking kindly to them, just in terms of acting in a way that a uh, mature, godly man would act. And so uh, let me address this and and gladly so. Uh, Let me start this way. First of all, our position at this school is crystal clear. We believe that God calls men to the leadership assignment. Uh, both in the home and also in the church. And so we do not believe that God calls men to be pastors, to be elders. We do not believe God calls women to be the pastor or the elder of the spiritual leader of a local church. Furthermore, we also do not believe that a woman can be the spiritual leader of her home, that God indeed has that assignment uh, for the man, for the husband and for those who are fathers. We also teach, I think rightly, that the Bible provides some beautiful models for what it means for a man to lead in that kind of a way and uh, that the models you find in Scripture are those of a shepherd uh, and those of a servant. And so when it comes to leading the church, we are shepherds. Uh, we're not dictators or autocrats. When it comes to leading our homes, we are shepherds. We are servants. Again, we're not dictators. We're not frustrated drill sergeants. We're not autocrats, but we lead our family in a loving, shepherding kind of a way. So that is the position of this school. Uh, I've talked many times to women that have come here or want to come here, and they've said, uh, I believe God has called me to be a pastor. Uh, can I come and study at your school? And the answer is yes, you can come and study at our school and you will be treated, uh, well, I intend for you to be treated kindly, graciously, lovingly. You do need to understand a couple of things. One, we will do our best to convince you of the wrongness of your view. And secondly, you do need to understand that under no circumstances would I ever recommend you to be the pastor of a church. That would not be a possibility because I don't believe that God calls women to the leadership assignment in the church. Now, having said that. Are women welcomed here to study the things of God? Absolutely. Does God indeed call women to serve the body of Christ? Absolutely. Is it indeed Completely and totally appropriate that God would call a woman, for example, to children's ministry or women's ministry or even to the mission field. Absolutely. And therefore, if you have a problem with that, gentlemen, you need to come see me. You need to come see me. And let me make myself crystal clear now at this point. I look at all of the women on this campus In a certain way, like I look at my wife, my daughter-in-laws and my granddaughters. And if you were to be ugly or offensive or rude to my wife or my daughter-in-laws or my granddaughter, you and I are going to get very close, very quickly, and it will be very personal. And if necessary, I will knock you flat on your tail in Jesus name, of course. To help you understand that you're not being a godly man, but you're being a jerk. You're being a jerk. Imagine that these ladies here were your mother. Or maybe your sister. You want someone being rude to them, being unkind to them, telling them that they're not welcomed here. When I was here back in 1992 to 96, uh, we were undergoing a transformation from a liberal school to a conservative school. And one of the liberal professors one day uh, told me that uh, things on the campus were transpiring that, again, were very uh, demeaning. And very unkind to women. And he said, I'm understanding, for example, that there are men that when they're walking down the sidewalk will not step aside for a woman to walk by and even will force them off the sidewalk into the street and will say ugly things to them about the fact that they're not to be here. And so I said, great, I want their names. And he said, what? And I said, I want their names. And he said, why do you want their names? I said, because I'm going to expel them. And he looked at me and said, so you don't agree with them?" I said, agree with them." I said, I know, I won't tell you his name, but I said, I know you think we are a bunch of the new kids on the block. We're a bunch of narrow-minded fundamentalists. We're a bunch of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who are convinced that women are only good for being barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. I know that you think that, but the problem is you think wrongly. You think incorrectly. And if I know of a man that is treating a woman in that kind of a way, he's gone. He's gone. We don't even have a one strike policy here or two strike policy. He's gone because I don't want him graduating with our degree. I don't want him out there representing our seminary in ministry. In fact, when I talk with him, as I am expelling him, I'm going to tell him that I don't think he's qualified to be in the ministry and that I will do everything I can to keep him out of the ministry. You say, you don't mean that. I mean every bit of that. And by the way, nothing has changed except now I'm not the dean of students. I am the president. Just by God's providence in my life. So here's my deal, ladies. Someone treats you in this kind of a way. Someone's ugly to you, demeaning to you, rude to you. You just need to come see uh, uh, Danny. Bring their name. And I'll take care of the rest. And boys, if you don't like what I'm saying... Then you come see me. Come on, pony up. Come on, bring your game. Because I just find this uncon- I, I In fact, when I got these two emails, it made me ill. I'm thinking, you, you are kidding me. You, you, you are kidding me that, that men who profess to love the Lord Jesus, to love the body of Christ, men who should be grateful for their sisters in Christ, who, by the way, never forget these ladies are daughters of the king. They're they're Jesus' daughters. Just like the lady you're married to is not just your wife. She's the daughter of the king. And I just have a strong suspicion that he expects us to take good care of his daughters. To protect them. To love them. To be kind to them and gracious to them. Now, I recognize some of you are just socially challenged. I understand this. You simply live in your own little bubble and you have this social unawareness of what's going on around you. You need help. okay? You need help. You need to learn that you need to pay attention to people that are around you. You need to realize that you don't have the right to interrupt people when they're talking to somebody else. You need to realize that though you may be the center of your own universe, you're not the center of everybody else's universe. And you just need to, like, get some social awareness, some social graces and some manners. It will help you in ministry, by the way, a whole lot if you will get those kind of things. And uh, so, again, if you need help in that area, if you suspect that you might need help in that area, you come see me and we'll make an arrangement for you to have an etiquette class that can teach you how to behave and act properly toward other people. I mean, I want to be fair. Sometimes I don't think that the men intend to be uh, donkey back ends. They're just good at being donkey back ends. That's just kind of their their natural mode of operation and their default mode. And so we need to change that. We need to break that default mode and get it to be a more godly, biblically-oriented, Christ-centered uh, default mold. And again, I'll be glad to help you with this. But guys, there's just no excuse for that. There's no excuse for that. And again, I am on the board of directors of the Biblical uh, Council on Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, I have written extensively and spoken extensively in terms of affirming a complementarian view of marriage and family life and church life. My my stance here is Without question and crystal clear, and yet at the same time that we would again then begin to take our sisters and treat them in a way that is not scripturally defensible, is not scripturally defensible, is shameful to me. And I'm embarrassed that you would even think about acting that kind of a way. Well, let's flip it now. Dr. Akin, throughout my time here, I have heard over and over again that single men need to man up. You do. And they need to start asking girls out on dates. And many of you do. Of course, you need to have the etiquette class first, but you, you do. Okay, you do. And this particular person says, I'm in 100% agreement with that. However, I believe an important factor has been left out. Being single, I understand why some men aren't manning up. We have been and continue to be constantly rejected by women because we weren't the one. Uh, many women are looking to date. A Jesus kind of man, the perfect man. And they are constantly unwilling to even go on a single date with a good, godly guy unless they think they have found the one. What do you think about uh, talking to the women and uh, encouraging them to going out at least uh, on a single date or one date with a good, godly guy uh, that asks them to go out even if they don't think that he's the one? Okay. If girls be willing to give guys a chance, more men would man up. What do you think? Please feel free to reword my question. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and I asked I remain anonymous. No problem there. Uh, there are a lot of things I could say here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, to both the guys and the gals. And so uh, let's see where I where'd I want to go. Uh, let's start here. Guys. If you're the type of guy that does go to a girl and say, God has told me, well, even right there, you know, we we need to stop right there. Okay, just need to go ahead and stop right there. This is already D.O.A. But if you go up and you say, God has told me that either a you're supposed to date me or B, you're the one that's supposed to marry me, then you scare me. And I could understand why a girl would run very quickly from someone like you. All right. Let me at least say it to you this way, if you think that, don't say it. Because I can just assure you that's probably not going to encourage her to even consider that that first date. OK, so keep that in mind. Uh, secondly, guys, rejection is just a part of life. So man up and get over it. Man up and get up. I mean, after all, you just really need to land one. <laughs> yeah, just, just need to land one. And, you know, yeah, maybe you go fishing, you know, a dozen times. But, hey, when you finally get the one, it was worth all the times that the hook came back empty. It just really is. And so, you know, just recognize that there are going to be those times when uh, I'm told no. Now, if you get told over and over and over and over, maybe there's some things that need to change on your end to make you more desirable to get that initial yes. Again, I'm not trying to be unkind to anyone, but, you know, maybe you're just socially awkward and you make people nervous and your first impression is not a good impression. Uh, you know, I'm sure as I look back up, praise God, I got married when I was 21 and 19. Charlotte was 19. I was 21. But even when I think back to my high school years, man, I can realize why some girls turned me down. Uh, you know, I was I, I made some approaches that, you know, thinking back on it, I'm like, were you just like brain dead or what? I mean, what were you doing? What were you saying that that turns me off as a male? How do you think it turned the female off? I mean, you know, that that just wasn't really very good. And so one of the things you can do is, you know, get some guys who love you, maybe even some sisters, you know, the one that you're not going to ask out for a date, the one that, you know, you don't have on the radar screen and say, look, I need some help. Here's how I, you know, I'm trying to do it. Tell me what you think and ask for true, honest Feedback, because your goal is not to be obnoxious. Your goal is not to come across as socially awkward. Your goal is not to come across as you better run as fast as you can from this guy. I understand that. And so maybe you just need to work on your approach. You need to work on how you ask someone out. Now, let me say this to to you all. Your generation is different than mine. Uh, One of the good things I think that you guys have come up with is kind of, you know, you kind of go around like pack of wolves. Y'all kind of go around and do this stuff together. You know, my world, that didn't happen. You, you wanted to hang out with a girl, you, you asked her out for a date. The idea of kind of just running around with a bunch of friends that were of the opposite sex so I ran around with a bunch of guys. I didn't run around with a bunch of girls. I, that just wasn't the world in which I live. Your world is different. And so one of the things that I think is good is this kind of social networking that you all do where you've got groups of folks coming together. And that's a good way of at least initially building a friendship. I'll tell you this, guys, uh, women, just by the way, God wired them. You're looking for a lover. And then a friend. Many times she's looking for a friend who becomes her lover. It's just the way they're wired. And so a lot of times what begins as a friendship then develops into a romance. And so maybe one of the things that some of you need to do is simply work uh, at becoming friends with those of the opposite sex and then seeing if God perhaps does something at that point and carries it at forward. But again, guys uh, and girls, let me say to you, you know, yeah, yeah. There may be a few of the girls out there that are kind of, you know, always got the hands up. In fact, there certainly are some like that, and they have their hands up for all sorts of reasons. Some of you have been burned in prior relationships. Some of you came out of broken homes. Uh, you've seen men act like scum-sucking dogs. In fact, you've hardly ever seen a really good, godly male. In fact, even though you suspect they're out there, you're still not quite sure. Well, I want to tell you, there are some good, godly men out there, and you need to try to let that, that barrier down. I mean, I married a woman. That grew up in an abusive alcoholic home and wound up going to a children's home, and uh, her brothers didn't walk. I mean, she she saw it in a really bad way, and yet by God's good grace, she was open uh, to a invitation from someone like me at that time to build a relationship. And 31 years later, it's just the most wonderful thing in the world. And so, guys, yeah, you just got to man up and accept the fact that yeah, you're going to ask sometimes, and you're going to get turned down. Keep on asking. And if you keep getting turned down, maybe you need to step back and ask, is there like something I'm doing that maybe is causing this to happen over and over and over and over? Make some adjustments, and I suspect that you might see a different response in the future. Would you consider evangelical annihilationists to be orthodox? Drawing on Al Mohler's concept of theological triage, would you categorize this question as a first- Second or third order issue. Of course, annihilationists believe that those who die without Christ are are sent into non existence, and therefore they do not spend eternity in a place of conscious torment called hell, but rather they are simply uh, consumed by the power of God and they go into nothingness. That's what annihilationists believe. Um, I would place this without any hesitation in the second category. In other words, can you be a Christian? And be an annihilationist. Yes. Uh, Many of you know that one very much respected, much loved evangelical by the name of John R.W. Stott is very sympathetic to the annihilationist position. Uh, I would not question his Christianity. I would not even question his evangelical commitments. Uh, Do I think he is a heretic? I would say he's heterodox. I would say that the view he holds is contrary to the orthodox tradition. And so I would place this in the second tier uh, category, which means what? Which means that you could not teach on this faculty and hold that view, which means you could not occupy a leadership position in my church and hold this view. Um, you could not teach the Bible to preschoolers. And hold this view. Um, It almost slides toward the third view because this is me. You could join my church and be a member of my church and hold this view. In fact, I may be a member of church of people that do hold that view. We don't basically give a theological examination to everyone when they come forward to join our church. And I can't find giving a theological examination to folks join the church in the Bible anyway, so I wouldn't do that. Uh, so you could be a member of my church, but could you be in a position of leadership and hold to either conditional immortality or annihilationism? No. And so I would place it in the second tier category, especially in terms of leadership, uh, though perhaps it would be a third tier issue in terms of them being allowed to be a member of my church. And that's how I would deal with that issue. Have you witnessed or experienced a local church setting where the church is effective in coming alongside couples on the brink of separation or divorce? Yes, I have but not as often as I need to. How does the seminary help prepare future pastors to lead in this much-needed area of ministry and crisis? Well, we all you're all required to take a class in biblical counseling. And in that class, we do try to give you guidance with respect to how to deal with people that are having difficulty in their marriages so that you can be both good at premarital counseling and good at postmarital counseling. I think a church has to have a commitment to do this. They have to have, my experience has been, uh, well-trained lay people who can come alongside these couples and give them an extensive amount of attention and time. It can happen, but people showing up in your office for two or three visits and getting everything taken care of just like that is highly unlikely. Uh, what they need is mentoring couples that have strong marriages that can come alongside of them and over a lengthy period of time help them change lifestyle behavior, help them change attitudes, help them make the adjustments that are necessary to keep their marriage uh, intact and then to move their marriage more toward a healthy and more sustainable ground. And So that's the, the thinking that I would have uh, with respect to that. Why is everything said in chapel or at school directed at Southern Baptists? While this is my first exposure to the SBC, I still believe many of the principles and application points in many speakers' messages are directed towards the convention. While many of them could apply to Christians in general, I understand that this is a Southern Baptist school and so on. Well, it is a Southern Baptist school. Uh, we're supported by Southern Baptists. 99% of our students are Southern Baptists, And so it's just going to be the very nature of who we are, that we address issues like our convention, like our Southern Baptist churches and so on. Now, having said that, uh, I would hope that we don't become so narrow and myopic in that regard that we exclude other evangelicals. And I would also quickly add that what I think would work well for a pastor of a Southern Baptist church would probably work well for the pastor of any kind of evangelical church. And therefore, I think that what we often say, though it may have a Southern Baptist focus to it, uh, can also be easily applicable to those that are not Southern Baptist. But again, we are a Southern Baptist school. We are funded by Southern Baptists. We train Southern Baptists, And so as a result of that, it's just going to be the very nature that that's very much the focus of who we are and what we're doing. Uh, with a heightened awareness of global social injustices, how should pastors in the local church be involved in supporting agencies such as the International Justice Mission? Well, we actually have a chapter here at the school. And of course, the International Justice Mission is very much involved in trying to help, especially with things like prostitution and uh, prostitution slavery that is just pandemic all around the world and even in uh, our own country as well. And so for me, uh, when this was a pro- uh, uh, first brought to my attention, I didn't even have Yes, you can have a chapter here. Uh, I pray for them financially. I give to various organizations in this area. Uh, Would I, if I were pastoring a church, uh, let this uh, be a part of our ministry? I would. Would I let it be the driving ministry? No, the driving ministry is the Great Commission, the gospel. But if you have a real passion to get the gospel to everybody on the planet Then, as I had the experience a a year and a half ago, and you drive down a road in Pattaya, Thailand, and you drive for a half a mile, and on both sides of the street for a half a mile, you see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes in the age range of 12 to 16, a few 17 and 18-year-olds, and you do like me, you get haunted by that. And you become like me and you think about that the first thing every morning when you get up. And I do. I can't help it. First thing in the morning, I'm not up 10 minutes. And that vision pops back into my mind with the Lord raising the question, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Well, what I'm trying to do about it, at least in part, is take this big mothership called the Southern Babs Convention and twist it and turn it and reorient it. So that, and again, the feedback, the blowback just grieves me. Uh, He'll share in a couple of weeks, but I'll go ahead and share it anyway because sometimes you hear something twice. Uh, When we come back for chapel after the fall break, I have given away my chapel slot to my friend Al Jackson, who pastors the Lakeview Baptist Church in Auburn. Uh, He preached a message at Southern Seminary on the greatest danger to a Great Commission resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention. And the summary of his message is the greatest danger to uh, the greatest hindrance to the greatest impediment to a Great Commission resurgence. in The Southern Baptist Convention is the American dream. The American dream. And based out of Matthew chapter six, he's going to challenge us in terms of having uh, the wrong uh, priorities, the wrong vision and the wrong master. And he will point out. Listen to me now. Last year, Southern Baptists through their churches gave 12 billion dollars. Our 45,000 churches gave almost 12 billion dollars. 2.75% ever left America. 2.75% got outside of America. Now, before I start beating up on, you know, well, you're going to beat up on the state conventions. and No, 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 no. Most churches keep 95% right there. Go look at your own church budget. Most churches keep 95, 90% right there. What you do. Now, don't misunderstand me. Do I think that most local churches need to keep... The majority? Of course I do. How else are you going to run the ministry and train them? So I'm not talking about that. But just think about this. What if we just got it from 2.75% to just 5%? 5% of our giving gets out of the country to the nations. Well, that's not quite double, but almost. And and, and we can't get 5%... Of the monies we give as Southern Baptists to the nations, I think that should bother us. Now just understand something and I'm going to close here. You start talking like that and you're going to get a lot of folks saying, well, you know, you know, brother, uh, you got to start with your Jerusalem first. Well, I know that. And then you got to move to your, uh, Judea. Well, I know that. And you've got to move to your Samaria. I know that. And then you get to the end of the earth. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. You want, you, want make, you want to play that game? Let's play that game. Let's start with our Jerusalem. How many Southern Baptist churches are there today in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill? <clears throat> Hundreds. Oh, let's move to our Judea. How many Southern Baptist churches are there today in North Carolina? More than 3,000. want to keep going? Let's keep going. How many are there today in our Samaria? We'll let that include just arguments like North America, but specifically America. Forty five thousand. Forty five thousand. Okay. How many Bible believing evangelical churches are there today in Tibet? None. In Bangladesh? None. In Nepal? A couple of hundred. In India? Hey, folks. I did the research last week on the Joshua project, just just out of curiosity again. I think I'm right here. There are 23 unreached people groups with a population of 20 million or more that have never heard the gospel. That, by the way, is almost twice the population of North Carolina, where there are 3,000 churches. Drop it down to how many unreached people groups are there with 10 million or more? Over 50. More than 50 unreached people groups in the world with 10 million in terms of population or more. And there's no gospel witness. In other words, we've got 3000 churches in North Carolina and about the same number in Georgia and Alabama and Florida. We've got that many churches in these states and we've got countries with populations 10 times the size of ours or five times the size of ours. And there are no churches. And I just have a question. I just have a question. Who's responsible to get the gospel there? Who's responsible? And if you say, well, it's not ours. Then you tell me whose it is. You tell me whose it is. And I don't mean to be unkind. But when I hear that kind of argument, it just nearly sends me into insanity. Spiritual insanity. Our Jerusalem, though it needs more good churches, it's got a lot of churches. And our Judea's got a lot of churches and our Samaria has got a lot of churches. But the ends of the earth, there are places where they've got no churches. And I just believe we are going to stand before God and God's going to say, so year after year, after year, after year, you all Southern Baptists gave 12 13, 14, 15, as it keeps growing, billion dollars. And how much of that did you use to get the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation? He is going to ask that question. And I may go down in flames trying to get the question answered by getting more there, and that's okay. I will tell you, I have lost some friendships already. I've had some people that I thought would guard my back in the foxhole that now have the gun pointed to the back of my head. That's OK, because when everything is said and done, I don't answer to you or any of them, but I will answer to King Jesus. And so will you. And so before I pick on everybody else, let's just start with us. And I'll close with this. If the Great Commission's fulfillment depended upon the way you live your life, in other words, if you became the model for everybody else, would the Great Commission get fulfilled? By the way you pray, by the monies you give, by the priorities you have in your life, if everyone followed your pattern, would the Great Commission Get fulfilled. I acknowledge before I start pointing the finger at anybody else, I need to look at my life and ask that question and then answer it very honestly. All right. Thank you so much for being here today. Let me close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much for the time we've had just to think about some of the things related to life and ministry and serving you. And, Lord, uh, we ended up where we needed to end up. With the question of the Great Commission staring us in the face. And Lord, I'm well past half of my life. And Lord, I know the end is coming far quicker than I could ever imagine. And again, my friend John Piper's words haunt me. I don't want to live a wasted life. I just don't. And Lord, I, I don't want to give my life to good things. And as a result, miss out on the best things. And Lord, I, I I confess to much disappointment and frustration at this point in time. But again, I am hopeful because of the God I serve and the promises of your word. So, Lord, if no one else is challenged and changed in all this great commission resurgence talk, but me, let me be changed. Let me have a greater heart and passion and commitment and devotion to the nations. May it influence the way I give. May it influence the way I pray. Lord, may it influence the way I orient my life. Because I really do believe that heaven and hell are real. I really do believe Jesus is the only difference. And I really do believe that no one has the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone's heard it at least once. And Carl Henry is right. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. I want to be about the business of helping it get there in time. May that be my life and may that be the heartbeat and life of these, my students, that I love so very much. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.